Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Today, on May 6th, 2022, we're going to be talking about something that I think most people have experienced or have seen, but maybe haven't thought about explicitly. That's woke capitalism. Today, it is my pleasure to have Brian Knight on to talk about this. He wrote an interesting article last year on the issue called The Danger of Woke Capitalism. I figured he would be a good person to talk to to help me understand what woke capitalism is and whether it is a problem or not. And to kind of look at examples in the real world. Brian is the Director of Innovation and Governance and a Senior Research Fellow at, Mercatus, at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His research focuses on financial regulation, such as the creation of pro-innovation regulatory environments or the role of federalism in fintech regulation. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get started, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't. Okay, I'm going to sound super cliche and boomer when I say this, but the, the, the thing I did not know at your age that I now know for good or for ill is that uh, life takes a lot of twists and turns, some real good ones, some real bad ones, some, some real disappointments that actually turn out to be good in the long run. And so, uh, you know, the, when I was when I was relatively young, I had like a lot of I had my hopes set on a lot of things that ended up not panning out, and some of those I kind of wish still had panned out, and some I look at and I'm like, boy, I dodged a bullet there. So uh, I guess that's the that's the one thing that I did not and could not have learned have known then that I know now that uh, you know I could try to pass on to folks, uh, but then people told that to me when I was young and I didn't listen then. So take it for what you will. And for me, it's not necessarily that I don't listen. It's more that I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. Life just took a turn last week. This happened, that happened, whatever. Okay, I'm done now. Except then, obviously, it happens again because life never stops taking its twists and turns. So it's kind of maybe not a lesson learned the hard way, but something that needs constant reinforcement before it sinks in. Um, That's a great response, though. Good thing to keep in mind. Okay, so let's get into it. So Ross Douthat, I think I'm saying his name right, at the New York Times coined the term, quote, woke capitalism in 2015. In his piece, he defined it as how companies signal their support for progressive causes in order to maintain their influence in society. What what do you think is the definition of woke capitalism? And can you give us a few examples of what woke capitalism is? Yeah, so I, I guess I should start by saying I'm, I'm actually not a huge fan of woke capitalism. The article you referenced that I wrote was a, a review of Woke Inc. by Vivek Ramaswamy, which is a very interesting book. And, you know, go read the review on discourse.com. I have mixed feelings about it. Um, and the reason I'm not a huge fan of woke of the phrase woke capitalism is that the phrase woke is inherently morally laden and inherently polarizing. Um, you know, like 
it's polar. Lots of things are polarizing that aren't necessarily morally laden. Like pineapple on pizza is polarizing, but there's no moral quantum to it. Woke is inherently has an inherent moral quantum because when you hear that word, you you're either thinking yes. We are awakening society from a history of prejudice and, and oppression, and we are we are forcing it to become better. Or you hear, you know, this is uh, you know sort of cultural Marxism, uh, warmed over communism, neo racism, whatever. Um, and so, and the other thing about the phrase woke is that it has an inherently progressive uh, tone to it, as Duhat points out. And certainly, the current era of of sort of commercial or corporate politicizing political activity has a progressive tint, you know, or at least the the really high profile cases, but there's nothing that says it must always be that way. And and historically it hasn't necessarily always been that way. And so anyway, uh, uh, that throw clearing out. Um, I think what it is, is it is an example of corporations using corporate power, corporate resources, uh, corporate leverage to try to affect the you know the, the underlying societal or, or political picture, uh, it's trying to, 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 to use corporate power to pr- provoke a change or, or, or force a change in society in an area that that's traditionally outside of the corporation's uh, traditional role or ambit or, or area of concern, um, and so it's not that every Every time a corporation takes a position on a polarizing political issue, that would count as "quote unquote" well capitalism, because corporations often will take positions on polarizing issues that directly relate to their line of business. Right? Like oil companies have opinions about environmental regulation um, because they're in the business of extracting oil. But uh, you know, a, an oil company having an opinion on voting regulation is is often reflects an effort by, by some, some constituency, and we, we can get into more detail about what I mean by that, trying to leverage the corporation's power to either convince or coerce or, or whatever the state to change its, its regulation on voting or, uh, you know, uh, gender issues or, or whatever, something that's outside the, the, the exact or the explicit uh, business line of that corporation. That's a good distinction. Um, I'm going to give you a few examples of things I've heard recently been referred to as woke capitalism, and I want you to tell me whether you agree. So I'm going to give three. Twitter banning Trump from its platform. Apple and Amazon's attempt to destroy the social media app parlor. And Disney announcing that it would fight to repeal the so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. Are any of them more right. capitalism? Well, so with a very strong caveat that that there's information out there that I'm not privy to, um, I think you could make a, a pretty strong case for uh, example one and example three, uh, the 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 Twitter one and and the the Disney one, and and I, I think that the the jury is very much still out on number two because there are plausible arguments to be made. That uh, Amazon and uh, and Google reacting to Parler, like you know, it, it, I don't know this to be sure. I have heard this, and it is plausible, um, but not as, not necessarily true. But it, it's a plausible argument that the issue is that Parler 
did not have in, you know, sufficient internal sort of cybersecurity or, or whatever other policies in place to allow Amazon to feel comfortable to scale them at the rate they needed to scale. I don't know if that's true, but that's a possibility. Conversely, say Disney taking a position on uh, the, the sort of parental, parental rights in education or don't say gay, depending on which side you're on, uh, Bill, it's much harder to see that as something you know inherently related to Disney's line of business. It appeared to be largely driven by pressure from uh, some employees, and so. But it, but it, what it was is it, it was Disney, you know, the Disney CEO not speaking in their individual capacity, but representing Disney and making statements about how Disney would use its resources in the future to affect the political environment in Florida and other states in an area that that doesn't directly relate to Disney's line of business. It isn't, you know, oh, we really want it to to be easier to make theme parks or we want more subsidies for filming in certain locations or or whatever. It's it's something to the side of Disney's core line of business. Twitter, you know, Twitter is kind of an iffy one, and I don't know. I, I know that the FEC... Uh, did a did a uh, an investigation of that I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but if I recall the news coverage, it, they found that it was done for a business purpose. Um, but just because something's done for a business purpose, at least superficially, I would argue, doesn't take it out of the sort of uh, you know corporate polarizing political activity uh, you know vein necessarily. Because one of the phenomena that that's at stake we see it at Disney and we, we arguably see it with, with uh, Twitter is that other constituencies of, of the corporation will try to leverage the corporation's power by changing corporate management's incentives. And I, you know, I, I threw out a lot of jargon there. If I could take a minute, I, I guess I'll just try to explain. Yeah. What I go mean ahead. Yeah. So picture simplified model, picture a corporation like a, like a machine and you have uh, the management in the cockpit of the machine, you have employees sort of running the, the, the bits and pieces of the machine, you have investors fueling the machine, and you have customers, uh, you know, hiring out the machine. The management in the cockpit can make choices on their own motion because they think something is good or bad or right or wrong, and, and they are under legal, ob- uh, legal obligations as to how they do that, but there's also very frequently a lot of discretion and a lot of, of legal defense available to them for making choices. But so the you know the management themselves might say, we think this is good or bad, we think this law is bad, and there's this temptation there'd be a temptation on their part to use the corporate machine to uh, discourage the law from being passed or to, or to fight against it. And and that presents an agent principle problem potentially because the management actually owes a responsibility to the shareholders uh, to maximize profit rather than um, use the, 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 the corporate assets for what they want. But the managers are also also have to you know keep the, the employees relatively happy because if the employees stop working, the machine breaks down. They have to keep customers happy, and some customers might be more important to them than others. They have to keep the shareholders happy. And in the United States, when I say shareholders, very frequently what I actually mean for these purposes are asset managers who nominally hold shares on behalf of a whole bunch of individuals in retirement accounts or, you know, if you invest in like a Vanguard index fund or something like that, 
it's actually Vanguard who technically owns the shares of those companies on your behalf, but they're the ones who vote the shares. And so that that adds another layer of potential agent principle problem. All of which is to say, you can imagine a scenario, there have been scenarios where the manager says, okay, we're going to take this political stance, this polarizing political stance, not because we ourselves necessarily feel this way, but because if we don't, some constituency that we need to placate to function is going to get mad at us and make our lives hard or put economic pressure on us or something like that. And so even if there's a superficial business reason, that doesn't mean that underlying that is a political reason. So a company fires an employee after a Twitter mob demands that this person be fired. Where does that fit into it versus, say, a company like Hobby Lobby, which, I mean, I didn't really know what it was, but I'm also kind of young, but maybe that's just me living under a rock, um, whose business structure is tied to religious beliefs. They don't open on Sunday. Their insurance plan doesn't include birth control, that sort of thing. Kind of like Chick-fil-A is what I thought of um, when I was reading about it, because that's what I know about. Um, how is So how is firing someone because of a Twitter mob, how does that differ from, say, Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A firing workers because they're gay or something like that? Well, so... I guess the, the short answer is I'm not aware of Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A firing anyone because they're gay. And very frequently doing that would be illegal under state anti-discrimination law. Mm-hmm. But let's take the, the Twitter mob scenario. It, it really kind of depends on like what, what was motivating the Twitter mob, right? Like what did the employee say? If the employee got on Twitter and dropped a bunch of slurs and you know, customers were like, hey, I don't want to shop with you because you hire a bigot. That's that's one thing. And, and we can debate whether or not that that's good or appropriate and, and whatnot. But, but there the corporation is looking at being like, wow, that really hurts our reputation for no no necessarily defensible reason. But let's imagine an alternative scenario where, OK, you know, employee works at at, uh, you know, Let's Hobby Lobby's alternate universe twin. And but after they clock out, they go to the school board meeting and they argue for, uh, you know, allowing uh, you know, sort of uh, transsexual students to compete in sports of their identified gender rather than what's on their birth certificate. Um, and people, someone else recognizes them as a Hobby Lobby employee and gets on Twitter and says, like, I can't believe you, you've hired this person and this is inconsistent with, with you know, our values and Hobby Lobby values. And Hobby Lobby sees the firestorm, realizes that you know, no, no individual employee, unless they are just an incredible superstar, uh, and is, is, worth the, is economically worth the hassle of this Twitter storm, and they fire the person. Well, I would argue that that does present a problem because what got that person fired was engaging in core political activity. Like they were they were availing themselves of their right as a citizen to go assemble, petition the government, express an opinion on a matter of public import, um, and that that activity undergirds the legitimacy of our system. 
If you take that away, then the legitimacy of our system, I would argue, gets really shaky really fast. And even if Hobby Lobby's position is, we don't care what your view on this is, if we had found out on our own, we wouldn't have fired you. But the Twitter mob of our potential customers makes it economically unviable for us to, you know, or it, it's not worth keeping you on board because now you are worth your you cost more than you add in terms of just pure economic productivity to the corporation. I still think there's a problem there because that's allowing economic power to trump the ability to for citizens to have political equality and, and full political engagement. Um, and, and so in, in that case, like it kind of depends on what is the Twitter mob trying to get out of this? If they're trying to suppress political speech, they're trying to hamper a full debate and, 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 and try to influence the underlying political environment because, hey, if we, if we can, you know, collect a couple of heads of employees who stand, who stand up for this, other people will keep quiet and therefore it'll be easier for us to win the political fight. That presents, you know, a broader societal question than if someone just gets on Twitter and starts, you know, being really rude and obnoxious. In your article, you note that we need a taxonomy for this term. Do you have one? I mean, I think these examples kind of showcase it a little bit, but bare bones. I am actually, that is something I'm, I'm trying to work on right now. It is actually a, it's a word file up on my um, a monitor right now, because I, I would argue that we've just kind of scratched the surface of all of the different permutations of, of this sort of politically or corporate politically polarizing activity. And depending on which, on, on the exact contours of what's going on, it presents questions of, you know, is who is being, is anyone being harmed? And if so, who, how is, is the, is the harm the type of thing that the state should take note of? Is it, should it be legally cognizable or is it the type of thing that, you know, should just kind of exist in a, in a society where, the, where state intervention would be worse uh, is, um, you know, what, what, what are the potential responses to it? Should there even be responses? I mean, you know, people get to try to change society in certain ways. And if you're the, on the losing end of that change, it doesn't mean you necessarily have a right to, to get the government to come and undo it. Conversely, there have been a lot of, I would argue, there have been some assumptions about sort of corporate action and, and all that that don't necessarily still hold up in the modern environment, or at least in the, it, trying to you know, sort of look at kind of where we are and where we seem to be going in terms of effort to utilize corporate power to drive, to de facto drive political outcomes. And I mean, in my lifetime, I would say, from what I'm aware of, it seems so much more prominent now than maybe before COVID, I think, would be a relatively okay marker. Um, I mean, I'm sure it was prominent in my life before then, but that's when I kind of became more aware of it. Um, but the discussion and the debate about what capitalism isn't even that new. It seems like an extension of the debate that Milton Friedman was having, that cl his claim that business's responsibility is to maximize profit and that those 
who argue that corporations should be promoting desirable social goals are, I don't know, that that's like not, what do you think? Well, so, I mean, if I recall correctly, the, the, the Milton Friedman quote sounded like, you know, ma- maximizing profit within the rules of the game. And within the rules of the game, I think, deserves more attention than it gets. Because, and, and this, this speaks to, like, the, the fact that, there are, that you know, woke capitalism is not one thing, it's many things. And I'm, I'm actually thinking about trying to write something with that, with, with that sort of headline. But, um, like, the... You can imagine a scenario where, like, corporate management is like, well, I think, I think that you know, climate change is a severe threat, and and we need to be doing more, and Congress won't do enough, and so I'm going to use my corporate power to uh, persuade or compel or coerce uh, changes in in people's behavior, um, and. That, you know, that could present a, the sort of traditional Friedman problem of like, wait, and when you're doing that, are you are you sacrificing returns to shareholders? Right. You know, if you've if you, um, you know, very potentially like if, if you got out of all oil stocks for, for you know, investors because of climate change, without being a, a specifically green focused fund that people opted into, um, well, maybe you have some, something to answer for now with with oil being so expensive. That's that's one example. But in the going back to the sort of the alternate universe Hobby Lobby example, if you're Hobby Lobby's management, you can you can say, no, look, this is the profit maximizing choice to fire this person because if we you know their their marginal productivity is less than the the loss that we're going to have if we can, if we retain this person because we're going to alienate a bunch of customers, and so actually the profit maximizing move is to fire the person. And that's fine as far as it goes, but then the question becomes, should the rules of the game allow that choice because it is threatening something that, that, that is very important to the underlying legitimacy of our society? And, and that's part of the mechanism and intuition around things like anti-discrimination law because there, there were cases where an employer would say, look, I, it's not that I am biased against uh, someone on the basis of their race or gender or religion or whatever, but my customers are. And so if I hire this person or if I retain this person, I will lose more money than I would from, from customers who leave than I would get from keeping this person on, on board. And our response has traditionally been, and I think appropriately so, tough or, you know, less, less glibly, I'm sorry, we cannot allow uh, that sort of, uh, you know, sort of commercial coercion to penalize people on the basis of a protected class. So tell your customers that you can't fire this person and neither can anyone else. And so their choice is to either stop going to to this type of business or, uh, you know, suck it up. And we saw that, like in the 1970s, there was an effort by the uh, Arab League to encourage a boycott of, of Jewish and Israeli businesses. And they, they this is before, uh, you know, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act was expanded. And they would pressure American banks to say, look, if you want our business, and we'll give you a lot of business, you cannot do business with Israeli or, or Jewish-owned firms. And one of the reasons that we amended the Equal Credit Opportunity Act to include 
uh, national origin and religion is to allow those banks who, who didn't want to be there in that position to, to go to those, to those uh, Arab governments and say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And neither can any other American bank. And so your choice is to leave the American banking system or stop making this demand. And I would say that was the right thing to do. It seems like it protects employees from something that in no way is up to them. I mean, you can't really choose your origin when you're born. (laughs) Um, So we've touched on this a little bit, but what are the dangers of capitalism, especially in banking? And you've touched on, I mean, you gave that example, but in the examples we've looked at, what are the specific dangers of each situation? Sure. So if I could just cycle back for one second, you raise a good point about the sort of immutable characteristic and the arguable exception to that. And I'm sure all your your Calvinist listeners are going to yell at me. And I grew up Calvinist, you know, so, is you can choose your religion or, or at least it is generally believed you can choose your religion. And so it's not all immutable characteristic. There is there are some care. And in some areas, things like uh, political affiliation on a partisan basis are are protected classes as well. So it's not all immutable characteristic. To, to some degree, it is, uh, you know, trying to get people to make different choices or to penalize people for their choices. Um, anyway, with that said, going to banking, I, you know, I, I, I wrote wrote a big law review or big law journal article um, with, with a, a former colleague on this, that my argument is that banks are unique in that they are a very much a product of public policy. Um, there is no such thing in the modern world, as a, at least in modern America, as a truly free market. But there are markets that get closer and markets that get further away. The closer ones are marked by things like very limited barriers to entry, uh, no, no benefits given to some competitors and not others, limited barriers to exit so that if your firm fails, it fails. The government doesn't come in and keep you alive. The government not giving you uh, certain, you know, access to certain utilities or something like that, that they don't give some of your competitors, um, et cetera, et cetera. Everything I've just described, you know, banking has all of those things. There are very high government-imposed discretionary barriers to entry. You, the government gets to choose whether or not to give you a banking charter or FDIC insurance. It isn't something that's granted as a matter of right, like a a business license. Uh, Banks get a lot of advantages over non-banks in areas like lending and money transmission. Banks get, uh, you know, have a significant implicit and sometimes explicit guarantee against failure. Um, They get the the government will lend the money. And and for the really big banks, uh, you know, there's a view that that we're not going to, we can't let them fail. They're just so so systemically important that we're not going to let them fail. And so, um, you know, and it's worth asking, well, why do we do that? And the the answer that that's put forward is banks are essential to a modern economy. You need to have a bank or something like a bank to access funds, to consolidate funds, to move money, to get credit. Uh, and, you know, if, if you can't get access to a bank as a business, life becomes borderline impossible for you. Um, certainly, if you're a business of any size, if you can't get access to banking services as an individual, life becomes very, very, very difficult. Um, and so 
we, we, we empower these institutions to facilitate a lawful economy. And, you know, lawful economy is dictated by what is lawful, which is governed by the political process. And what do people actually want to buy and sell? And that's governed by the market process. And but if banks interpose themselves and say, well, as they've as they've done recently and say, well, look, Congress should outlaw X, Y or Z, but they won't. So we're going to try to, uh, you know, change the yeah, effectively change the availability of these services by imposing requirements on potential customers that they meet our standards, which are higher than or more restrictive, I should say, than the, than the legal standards. And, and that's, that's how we are going to make a change in the world. Then the problem becomes, well, but look, you, you exist and you've been empowered to do a certain thing, facilitate a lawful economy, and it looks more like you're trying to frustrate a lawful economy. Because, of course, if people didn't want to buy you know, a gun or if we didn't want to have private prisons to facilitate our immigration process or, or immigration policies or, or whatever, you know, if, if people don't want to buy something, you're not going to make the loan because economically it doesn't work to make the loan. The company's not viable. If people don't want a certain public policy, you know, a certain public policy that a private corporation exists to support, then we have the political process to adjust for that. It, in, but instead you have institutions that are empowered largely through public policy for a particular purpose, actually operating contrary to that purpose. And that, I would argue, presents problems that are, are different from some of the problems we've talked about previously. I mean, previously we've talked about sort of impact on political rights of the individual. We've, we, we kind of alluded to issues around sort of obligations to shareholders um, as to how their corp, the, the, the corporation that they are investors in are using its resources. Here, it's a case where it's like, well, this, these, these companies have a very specific, very unique uh, mandate and, and, and arrangement that they are arguably not only just not participating, but kind of frustrating. Yeah. And back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, I was thinking about it on the characteristics front. There are psychological and genetic traits that play into your natural inclinations and perception of the world. So even though religion and political affiliation to an extent is a choice and something you can change your opinion on, your natural inclination is less of a choice. I mean, it's like locust of control and all that sort of psych stuff that I'm not great at because I'm an econ person. But it's just hard because I think technology in a lot of cases has kind of I don't know if it's crossed a boundary it shouldn't have crossed, but it crossed a line that used to exist between your personal life, your political life as an employee, as someone, as a part of a greater whole as a company, and the company and the function that it plays in terms of providing a good or a service. So I don't know if that's what I was thinking about. But banks in that same way, I mean, you're right. Banks have been given this power to, I mean, they don't, they can't really fail because of the FDIC, right? Is it the FDIC? Well, so banks fail all the time and, and the FDIC is there to bail out the, the depositors. But some banks, um, well, in the, in the 2008 crisis, for example, which was a, case, a financial crisis, 
many banks that probably would have failed did. Some of them were very small, and it was uh, the FDIC expanding insurance coverage or the Fed lending to them through the lending window or, or the, the discount window or something like that. Uh, some of them survived because of that type of, of backing, and some of the very large banks um, survived through like ex- explicit and extraordinary means for those banks. Um, based upon the Congressional Oversight Panel for the TARP, the belief was that Citibank probably would have failed barring really extraordinary government intervention. Bank of America might have failed, in fairness to Bank of America. Some of that was the shotgun wedding that they had with Merrill Lynch at the government's behest. So, but there's also a view, I think, at the FDIC that Bank of America itself had some pretty serious weaknesses. Um, and so in, in, it's not that banks never fail, and it's not that it's only the big guys who, who, who never fail, but it is a scenario where many banks that probably would have failed didn't, and there is a, a view that despite efforts to the contrary, it, it, it doesn't seem like there, there's much belief that the really large banks will be allowed to fail in, in if, if, if circumstances require it because of the concern of collateral damage to the broader economy. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Well, so then I think, I mean, to me, what it seems like is that the issue with banks is that they're kind of given this sort of aid and or safety net, um, regardless of whether they deserve it or not. This exists um, for consumers, for the banks, for whoever. Um, And that kind of gives them a power that corporations don't have. So there's less of a check on whether a bank can discriminate because of political affiliation or this or that. Whereas, I mean, there's that quote in the I think it was Michael Jordan in the NBA who said going woke is going broke. Republicans buy shoes, too. So that's why he's not involved in politics. And I think a lot of the stuff we kind of forget. And I don't know. And I mean, maybe it's consumers and us who were thinking about this and we're forgetting. But maybe it's companies that are forgetting this when they're participating in woke capitalism for virtue signaling, for true belief, for whatever. Um they they kind of forget that not everyone is so woke. And even people who are woke can have issue with woke capitalism because they think it's virtue signaling. I mean, my friends, so Starbucks does commercial compostability. But if I as an individual were to try to attempt to compost a Starbucks cup on my own, I couldn't do it. It requires some sort of special methods and something, something. And my friends are like, that's virtue signaling. They're not green enough. They're just like trying to profit off of the fact that they are green, except they're not really. So it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people see this problem. So to what extent does virtue signaling play into this? And is that, I don't know, does that make a significant difference in why a company is doing what it does? I I suspect virtue signaling broadly defined plays a large role in this. But the question is, like, why? Who are you virtue signaling to? If if you're if you're corporate management, you're either virtue signaling on your own motion because you think something is good and, 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 you know, 
boy, I, I have this, I'm in this privileged position as the head of a company to, to make this change. And, and I think it's good. And, and, you know, maybe my friends will like me, will hold me in higher esteem. Or you might be signaling to, if, if this is customer driven, I mean, if it is customer driven, you might be signaling to your customers that like, hey, we get it. We, we share an affinity with you on what, what the world should look like. Um, you know, and, and customers are, at least there's, there's evidence that customers are more and more sort of polit- political, small p political in who they choose to do business with. Um, you, if you're signaling to your employees, right, if you're facing a lot of employee pressure to do something, and you're signaling like, okay, we get it, we we agree with you, go back to work, please. Um, then you know, then that then that's the signal you're trying to placate. It could be, it could be the media, it could be your shareholders or the asset managers that that are likely you know controlling a lot of, of, of the shares in your company. And you say, okay, we, we get it, we, we see where you're we see what you're where you're coming from, and we support you, and, and we'll do you know we'll, we'll run the business consistent with what you would like to see, uh, you know, small p politically. Um, so, you know, to some degree, there's some signaling in all cases. Now, in some cases, like the sort of the allegations of greenwashing, um, it's, it's more, it's more, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors than, than reality, right? You're like, oh, well, we're tech, we can technically say that we are, uh, you know, 100% recycled materials, but if anyone actually cracks open the lid and looks at it, it's actually not efficient or good for the environment or whatever, um, sometimes it, you, for, for the, for the corporation doing it, it may just be trying to play, like I said, placate a constituency through signaling, but it has real effects. Like some, some, some group is hurt or benefited in a real way by this. And that's what the, the, the constituency that's being placated wants to see is like, Hey, we want to make a change in the world we have a lev- we have leverage over you as a corporate institution. You, in turn, have some sort of power, and we're gonna we're gonna use our leverage to get you to use that power to further our vision. Um, and so, you know, and then that can, as discussed earlier, like that can take a bunch of different forms, ranging from you know fairly benign or or you know if you're not into it, it's, you know mildly annoying, to you know potentially really pernicious. And everywhere in between. Do you think that we could restrain woke capitalism through policy? And should we? I mean, my natural inclination is to think that I would rather defer to companies and consumers than rely on the government for multiple reasons, because I trust myself more than I trust anyone else. And I assume most people do. Um, And also just that I just can't see how it doesn't backfire, but I could be wrong. I think the answer to that question really depends on what exactly you're talking about. Because like I said, I mean, woke, woke capitalism can, can range from the mildly, you know, mildly positive slash annoying, depending on which side of, of any given issue you fall down on to potentially really pernicious. Um, you know, if let's take the let's take the Disney example where they, you know, they said we 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 oppose this law and we're going to use. You know, there was sort of an open ended commitment, but uh, open ended but vague commitment to you know work to get it repealed or to oppose similar laws in other states. Well, who who is hurt by that? People, you know, people who like the law might be annoyed. They might be ticked off. They they may feel like that's inappropriate. 
Disney's shareholders, and, and by that I mean like the underlying individuals who pony up the money, not necessarily the asset managers, they might be annoyed either because either from a, a Milton Friedman traditionalist perspective of like, why are you alienating a big chunk of our customer base, Disney, that's going to hurt returns in the long run, or from a more stakeholder capital view of, well, I, as the person putting up the money for Disney, do not want the Disney Disney's power to be used to further a vision of the world that I do not like. You know, they, they may, they might have a legitimate grievance, and then that sounds in corporate governance and securities laws. And, you know, do our, are our corporate governance laws up to snuff to handle these issues? And there's an argument to say that they aren't, um, which we can certainly get into if we have time. But in the hypothetical where the person is being fired for speaking at a school board meeting, that's the type of thing where I do think the argument is strongest for the state to intervene because protecting individuals' ability to fully participate in the political process, as is their right, as the legitimacy of our system relies upon, um, does matter. And, and, and I think that, that you have that's where you kind of have the strongest argument for intervention. Um, and that, and also, you know, the, the, the action of that individual has no bearing on their ability to do their job function, right? Uh, you know, they can be a cashier at Hobby Lobby just as well as anybody else, provided they're willing to, you know, serve, serve everybody and, and, and be polite about it. Um, you get into, and, and then they're like kind of dicey middle grounds, right? Uh, you know, should, should uh, Masterpiece Cake, the guy at Masterpiece Cake Shop, be forced to bake a wedding cake for a, a gay wedding? You can make arguments both ways. Uh, should a, 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 let's say, an employee at uh, The Gap, and we, we picked on Hobby Lobby, let's pick on The Gap, um, during Pride Month, should a, should a conservative uh, Christian employee be forced to wear a badge that says love is love, not because Gap corporate necessarily believes that, but because they've done the math to show that our customers really like this. They really like to see this. It makes them, it makes them identify positively with us. So this is part of our advertising campaign and you clerk should have to wear this badge because it's part of your uniform. Now, should they be forced to, to wear such a, you know, that, that's a badge, even if they strongly disagree with the message on religious or ethical grounds, that's a really dicey question. And, and needs to be thought through. And, and, and your point about concern about the government is a very valid one. Um, if you go, if you're not careful in, in resisting corporate politicization, uh, you know, in this in this version, it, it's it's progressive, but it could be conservative. You pretty soon you get into like controlled economy territory, and that's that's bad. On the other hand, it's I'm not convinced that each and every you know, if, if you make any restraint on, on the corporate activity, you're in uh, controlled economy territory because we, we do have things like anti-discrimination laws. And I understand that in some, for, for some folks, those things are, are very controversial from sort of a property right freedom of association perspective. And I, I understand. On the other hand, I think there is a really good, strong argument to say in a, you know, pluralistic uh, society, some amount of, 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 you know, forcing people to be willing to sort of interact with each other, um, blind to those issues, or, or at least not taking note of them officially, is necessary and appropriate. And also that some, under certain circumstances, people just shouldn't be penalized for certain things, that, that a just society will not allow that to occur. 
it's a very dicey question that hinges on the specifics of what we're talking about. So there's no, I don't think there's any one pronouncement or one answer, yay or nay, about, you know, what should we do about woke capitalism? It's more like, well, what explicitly are you talking about? The gap example is a really good one to think about. I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about that. Um, the way that I kind of am seeing it now, kind of taking a step back, is that, so there's my fear that government intervention in just like general um, could lead to incentives that mess with the market. But then there's also on the other side, there's the market and companies responding to the political beliefs and political intensity of some consumers that incentivizes them to kind of distort our political process in a way that prevents individuals in the company to do what they do what they want or to interact with it in a way that is true to themselves without sacrificing their livelihoods and their jobs. And so I don't know, is that right? No, I, I think that's a that's an that's exactly right. I mean when when we think about this as people who who care about individual liberty and who care about economic liberty and all the all these important things, I would argue, and mind you, I'm 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 probably on the more aggressive side of the spectrum on this, that you know, the risk you run under certain circumstances for for some of this, not not necessarily all of it, but for some of it is a world where the people with more economic power, be it the asset manager or the, you know, the, the sort of most dominant group of customers or, or whomever, end up using that economic power to coerce or convince corporations or, or just incentivize corporations, let's say that, to then use that power to suppress political activity. And there's a word there. You know, there's a word for a government where the rich people make all the rules, or where the rich people get to, you know, use their economic power to suppress the the, the speech and activity of, of the less rich. It isn't a democracy. It isn't a republic. It isn't. It isn't somewhere I think any of us want to live. And so, for like by all, we sh- we should be very wary of, of of folks saying, well, we the, the the government needs to go in there and do something to that company because they have a position I don't like. We need to be very wary of that. On the other hand, I would also say we should be wary of just sort of a knee jerk like, well, you know, the, the, the free market will sort it out or, well, um, you know, w- w- what are we going to do? Any regulation would be worse. I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. Instead, I think we, we need to really focus on like what explicitly or specifically are we talking about? What who what is the harm? Who's being harmed? Should this harm that, you know, does this harm require or should this harm receive a government response? And what's the minimally invasive response to mitigate the harm? Um, you know, and, and, and that, that is going to be a very complex question under any given circumstance, but it's the question I think we need to face up to. I wish we had more time to talk. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Before we go, I have one last question. What is one thing you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Well, I, perhaps ironically, given our conversation, not ironically, given our conversation, may I shouted it. I, I, I used to be way more confident in the market's ability 
to solve almost everything. I, look, I think markets are incredibly powerful and incredibly valuable and on balance, incredibly beneficial things. And like, I would not want to, I would not want to go to a world without them. And I think that, that they do amazing things. I do not think, however, that all of life's questions should be susceptible or are susceptible to a, a necessarily a market solution. And that at some level, uh, way less than we probably have in our current society overall, but, but at some level, you do need to, um, you are going to need other factors, uh, you know, ethics, law, justice, religion, all of these other sort of non-market activities and, and, and vehicles to create a just society. Um, and so, or, or I guess put differently and globally, uh, you know, the market was made for man, man wasn't made for the market. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight. And I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.